The Governor General's website says this, central to our progress is the determined pursuit and acquisition of knowledge. Central to our progress is the determined pursuit and acquisition of knowledge. And in some sense, I think all of us understand this pursuit of knowledge. Each of us spends our lives acquiring, accumulating knowledge to some degree or another. And so whether it's by reading books, or whether it's by watching documentaries, whether it's by having a conversation with someone who knows more about a subject than we do, we each spend our lives accumulating knowledge. Every time we search on Google, we're pursuing knowledge. But in another sense, the pursuit of knowledge might be kind of overwhelming to us, might make us nervous. Uh, we live in an age of information overload. At the click of a button, I can pull up uh, way too much about baking sourdough than I could ever get through in a, in a lifetime. Uh, or if we watch the news, more stories are covered than we have time to process. Uh, the, the rapidity of, of how fast everything goes through. Uh, so the idea of the pursuit of knowledge might be just overwhelming to us. This morning, we're going to look at a different path to the pursuit of knowledge. And actually, a different knowledge, different idea of knowledge uh, altogether. In our culture, we're pursuing scientific knowledge is seen as the ultimate goal. The Apostle Paul is actually going to turn this around and tell us that that is not the supreme goal. He reminds us that there's a different type of knowledge, one that's even more important than scientific knowledge, the knowledge of God. And this is at the heart of the prayer that he has for one of his churches, the church of Ephesus. So before we go further, go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you have your uh, Bible app on your phone, go ahead and open that up and go to Ephesians chapter 1. And we'll read a few verses from there in a moment. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. And this is what he says. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you, in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things 
under his feet and appointed him to be head of everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear what you are telling us through the Apostle Paul this morning. Help us to learn how to pray with Paul. Amen. God wants us to know him, and our prayers should reflect this. This is the heart of this passage, the center around which everything else revolves. This is kind of the sun of the solar system. God wants us to know him, and our prayers should reflect this. So if this is Paul's main point, then how would you expect for him to begin his discussion of prayer? Probably somewhat in the same way that I've started this morning. Hopefully it's been clear that what we're looking at this morning is pursuing knowledge, the pursuit of knowledge, and not just any type of knowledge, but the knowledge of God. And not just pursuing the knowledge of God, but the pursuit of knowing God in our prayers. But that's not how Paul starts his prayer. He doesn't jump right in like we think that he might. Instead, he begins, Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. He actually begins with thankfulness. And Paul seems to do this pretty frequently, actually. Even before this, in in verse 3 to 14, it begins the same. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He begins with thankfulness. Before he ever states what he asks God for, he, he declares what he thanks God for. And I think this is easy to gloss over. We could dismiss it as a kind of requirement, uh, as a, a box to be checked off. You know, we all know that you know, we're meant to pray before we eat a meal. You know, there are kind of some exceptions. So, like, if you've got a plate of, like, fries and burgers, you can nibble on a couple of fries, but you better pray before you get to the burger. <laughs> Everyone knows you're meant to say, Amen, at the end of a prayer. Everyone knows that you're meant to be thankful to God. Why? Because he's God and, you know, it's kind of the thing to do, right? But I think the fact that Paul starts with thankfulness reveals something really important, which is that the starting point of our prayers should be thankfulness for what God has already done. Gratitude guards us from being nearsighted, stops us from being forgetful. Throughout the Old Testament, you have... um, this practice that keeps coming up again and again. And, and what happens is um, we see it happening with, with Moses and Joshua and, and the Israelite people. They, they come out of Egypt. God releases them from slavery. They pass through the Red Sea. God meets them at Mount Sinai. They, they go through the wilderness. Moses dies, and Joshua leads the Israelite people into the promised land. And before they get into this great land that God has promised them, they come to the Jordan River, and it stands 
as a block getting into the promised land. It's, in this, it's an obstacle in their way. But what happens? God shows up. And just like he parted the Red Sea, he, he stops the water flowing in the Jordan, and Joshua and the Israelites can walk across on dry land. And when they get to the other side, the first thing they do is they, they grab a bunch of big rocks and they pile them up on top of each other. I guess they're into, you know, sculpting. No, that's not it. It's because they wanted to say to their kids when they grew up, hey, what's that pile of stones for? Hey, Levi, let, let me tell you about the story that when God showed up at the Jordan River. It was a memorial. That pile of stones was meant to help them stop being forgetful. It was helped them to remember what God did for them. If we only focus on what we hope God will do, we are bound to forget what He has already done. We will treat God like a genie instead of like a loving, loving father. So I think the simple question that, that comes out of this is what do we thank God for? If someone was to give us a list of everything that we have thanked God for in the past year, what would be on that list? Would it be the safety of our children? Would it be thankfulness for a promotion? Would it be thankfulness for resolved conflict? None of these things are wrong, but they're not what Paul thanks God for here. What does it say in verse 15? Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus, and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. What's the thing that causes Paul to cry out thanks to God? Faith in Jesus, love for his people. The idea of faith here probably includes both trust and faithfulness or loyalty. When you see kids growing up here at Hillside and staying in the church and reading Scripture and praying and you hear about them confessing Christ at school, do you celebrate? Do you thank God for their faith in Christ? When you hear about an older couple walking alongside a younger couple through the trials of marriage, do you thank God? God when you see that. When you hear about a family welcoming a single guy into their family, into their home because they're a brother in Christ, do you celebrate the love that that family has for God's people? What we thank God for shows us what is important to us. Do our priorities align with the priorities of Scripture? Do we celebrate what we see celebrated in Scripture. But although we can be thankful for seeing growth in faith and love, 
The truth is that this life will always be a process of growth. There's never a moment at which we've fully arrived, which is why Paul then moves from thankfulness naturally to then praying for knowledge of God. God's been at work at his, in his people. Amen. And Lord, may you keep doing so, especially in expanding how much they know of you. We never fully reach the point of knowing someone. Those of you that have been married for 10, 20, 30, 40 years will know this. You know, you may know your spouse really, really well. You can tell us what they, what they like and what they dislike. You can tell us how they like their eggs, poached, over easy, scrambled. You can tell us about their routine, what time they go to bed, what time they wake up. What the first thing they do after waking up in the morning is. You can tell us what they, what they get the most joy from. But there's a sense in which, because we're finite creatures, we can never fully, totally, 100% know someone. Every now and then, something might surprise you. Even if you've been married to them for, for 20 years plus. And we can never know one another's inner thoughts. So when we apply this to the infinite, almighty God, of course, we can never fully know Him. Praying for the knowledge of God is something that we will spend our entire lives doing. But we can know Him more. We can know Him more. Whether you're a follower of Christ or not, whether you've been a follower for 50 years, there is more of God to know. D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, says, the more we get to know God, the more we want to know Him better. When you taste the knowledge of God, when you taste that relationship, you want more of it. And I think most of us have that experience. When we taste the goodness of God, we want to know Him better. So Paul tells the Ephesian church that he has two prayers, a twofold prayer that will enable them to know God better. Verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you might know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. There's an external gift and an internal transformation. The spirit of wisdom and revelation being given to us. And the enlightenment, the opening of the eyes of our heart. These are the two means by which we can get to know God. He doesn't pray that they'll get an A-plus in every class. He doesn't pray that they'll read a book every week. He doesn't pray that they'll become a professor at university. He prays for the Spirit. The Spirit of wisdom and revelation and the opening of their eyes. 
Knowing God is not about accumulating information. It's not about being able to recite facts. It's about knowing a person. It's about the Spirit of God dwelling inside of us, filling us, opening our eyes, revealing more of Himself. And Paul specifies what this more is, the knowledge of God that he wants the Ephesians to to fully grasp, that you may know the hope to which God has called you, and that you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and that you may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. Three crucial, essential truths are hope, our value, and the power of God. What is your hope this morning as you sit in your chair? What is your hope? What are you building your life upon? When everything else is stripped bare, what are you left with? There's a document called the Heidelberg Catechism. It was written in the 1500s. A catechism is kind of a a short summary of the Christian faith condensed into questions and answers. And the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism is, what is your only comfort or hope in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. By his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Christian brothers and sisters, the hope to which God has called you is the hope of eternal life. That you are not your own, You belong to your faithful Savior, Jesus, who will never let you down. And the more we know this hope, the more we will have peace, the more we will be able to make the most of this life, the more we will want to share this good news that we have experienced. The second knowledge that Paul prays for is knowledge of our value. The value that God has placed upon us. He says, He prays that you may know the riches of His glorious inheritance in His holy people. That means the inheritance that God has in His people. In verse 14, just before, it says that followers of Christ are God's possession. Maybe this is best expressed in John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave a lot of money. Nope. That he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. When I um, proposed to my wife seven years ago, I think, uh, 
I didn't have an expensive engagement ring. In, in fact, the, the ring that I proposed, was, proposed with was probably about 20 bucks. Um, but I doubt, or I really hope, that she wouldn't trade it for 20 bucks now. <laughs> and why is that? Is it because the ring itself is, is, is so valuable? Because it, you know, it's made of solid platinum? It really wasn't. <laughs> it's because of the value that she placed upon it. When she accepted that ring, the way she had to get that ring was to give me her hand in marriage. That's the value that she placed upon it. Not because it was worth that, but because that is the value that she placed upon that. And I think this is the kind of value that we have in the sight of God. Our value is not based within us. It's not based on how good we've been. It's not based upon how successful we've been according to the ways of the world. It's based upon what God gave for us. If God gave His only Son for you, what does that tell you about the value that He has placed upon you? What does that tell you about how valuable He sees you? The third knowledge that Paul prays for is for knowledge of God's power. And actually, the entire rest of the passage, uh, four verses, expands on this last point and answers the question, where is God's uh, incomparably great power seen? If you were asked that question, if someone said to you, where do you see God's great power? What would your answer be? Uh, We might say creation. From the, the greatest galaxy to the smallest atom, we see beauty and magnificence, God's creative work. Maybe we take a more philosophical approach, and we point to God's attributes. He's, he's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. Uh, he's immutable. He's incomprehensible. Maybe we'd look to the, the great miracles of the Old Testament. Or he's the God who, who split the sea. He's the God who made the sun stand still. He's the God who, who brought fire down from heaven. And all of these things do show the power of God. But they're not what Paul points to. Look at the rest of the passage, starting halfway through verse 19. That power is the same as the mighty strength God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. If you want to see God's power in all of its fullness, look to the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus. The power that God expressed for us, for his church, his people, Paul gives this magnificent picture of the power of God demonstrated through Christ. He he heaps up these word pictures. Christ is raised up. He's seated at his right hand on a throne because he is the king of kings. Everything else is below him. 
He is so high, he is above everything else. Every rule and authority, every power and dominion, every name that was, is, and is to come. And this is what true knowledge of God leads to. Not knowledge for its own sake. True knowledge of God leads to worship. These final verses make it clear that the kind of knowledge of God we should be pursuing is more than just information. There are different types of knowledge. There's head knowledge, there's heart knowledge, and we see this in Scripture. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, a more literal translation says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. It doesn't mean that Adam was sitting at his desk with a notepad and a pen, scribbling down observations about his wife, maybe asking some questions. Hey, what's your favorite color? Actually, it means quite the opposite. Um, In the same way, God wants us to know him, this intimate, relational knowledge. A litmus test for how you know God is does it lead you to worship? Because if it doesn't, you need to ask yourself, have you just memorized observations, information about God? Does your knowledge of God lead you to worship? We see this all throughout the Psalms. The great King David, time and again, weaves these two threads together. Knowledge about God and worship of God. So how can we move from knowledge about God to knowledge of God, this relational experience, this relational knowledge? How can we move from reading the Scriptures and learning about God to actually knowing the true living God? How can we bridge the gap between head knowledge and heart knowledge? How can we move from an informational knowledge to a relational knowledge? J.I. Packer, um, who wrote the, the kind of classic work, Knowing God, asks this question. And the answer that he gives is that the rule for doing this, for turning knowledge about God into knowledge of God, is simple but demanding. It's that we turn each truth that we learn about God into a matter for meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. So read Scripture. Learn all you can about God. By all means, read Packer's Knowing God. Study theology. Get a degree at Bible college, but meditate upon these truths. Knowledge about God is necessary, but it's not enough. It's not enough. Turn it back to God in prayer. Turn it into worship. This is what it truly means to know God. God wants him, God wants us to know him, and our prayers should reflect this. And true knowledge of God leads to worship. 
What higher calling can there be but to know the infinite, almighty, eternal, living God? Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24 says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. You can read as many books as you want. You can get the highest GPA that you can want. You can get as many PhDs as you can. But do you know the living God? Do you know the hope that he has given you? Do you know the value that you have in his sight? Do you know the power of God? J.I. Packer also wrote, There is no peace like the peace of those whose minds are possessed with full assurance that they have known God and God has known them. And that this relationship guarantees God's favor to them in life, through death, and on forever. Are you praying for a deeper knowledge of God? That's what Paul teaches us to pray.